you must be at least 18 years of age to listen to the following podcast. Ready? Now I am ready. Okay. Hi, I'm Robert Black, and this is Sexual Heroes, and today I have with me Richard Hames. Hi. Hi there. Richard is here because he is responsible for founding and managing many different programs and organizations related to HIV AIDS in its earliest days and ongoing, uh, LGBT youth, transgender youth, LGBT violence. So there's a lot to talk about today. But I want to start with, we're going to start in 1985. Okay. And until then, your life, your education, your career was all about graphic design. Totally 180 degrees from where Chad was. Yes. So what happened... In 1985, what was that aha moment that turned the ship? I definitely had an aha moment. I um, was freelancing um, and working out of my closest friend's uh, with AIDS studio. Mm-hmm. And I had just done a job for the Museum of Modern Art. And I got a call, and he got a call, and we were at two ends of a long desk. So I had a, on my end of the call, was um, the curator screaming at me that the book arrived and it was the wrong color red. And he got a call from his doctor saying that his blood work just came back and he needed to get to the hospital immediately. And we both hung up, and it was in that moment that I thought, okay, wrong color red, friend dying, what's wrong with this picture? So priorities became buried. Yes, and it was the right color red, actually. But that's beside the point. I just, something switched in my head, and um, I had known many people, of course, who had already died uh, since 82, but Tim was my closest friend who uh, was the first to pass away. And um, I went to my um, primary care doctor at the time, uh, Barbara Starrett, and, um, you know, was telling her, all the crap that was going on in my life and everybody's lives. And um, she said, you need to start volunteering at the clinic. And I said, what clinic? And she said, the clinic in the community center. I said, what community center? I was so oblivious to this other side of um, the gay community that was just two blocks away from where I was living. I was living on 15th Street, and the center is on 13th Street. So um, she gave me the name of the director, said, call Rona, and 
go meet with her and start volunteering there. So I did, and I, Barbara Starrett was a, um, a very um, robust, let's say, um, woman, lesbian, and um, she was one of the founders of this community clinic. So she gave me Rona's name, and I had a picture of Rona being <laughs> in a flannel shirt and as robust as Barbara. And when I went into the center, this the clinic was on the second floor, and um, it was in the uh, former Maritime High School. And um, I asked for Rona, they pointed me to her, and here was this petite, heterosexual woman. Okay. I want to talk about it. Okay, how good on you. All right, you started volunteer. I did. So I started, what were you doing? I, first, they put me in the laugh at night. I, was that rude? I just want to talk about Richard. That's okay. It, but it's, it's, it's all an evolution because without Rona, none of this would have happened to me, really. But she's, I've been lucky enough to have mentors in my life that have just sort of guided me to places that I, would never have gone. And um, she certainly was instrumental, was totally instrumental. And um, interestingly, excuse me, I had wanted to be a doctor growing up, but I didn't think it could be a gay doctor. And and I grew up with two basic fears of People kill you because you're Jewish, and people kill you because you're gay. Not even knowing what gay was, but I knew what I was feeling I wasn't supposed to be feeling or talk about what I was feeling. So um, when it came time, I was also artistic, so that's why it shows graphic design and um, rather than medicine. And all of a sudden... 180 degrees here in the world. Later, I made the world of medicine. And um, the clinic, Community Health Project, was an unlicensable space that the Department of Health made. um, They just gave us a pass every year because we were keeping all the gay men coming in with gonorrhea and syphilis and um, out of the Department of Health clinics. What were you doing there? So I was in the lab. Uh, I was no healthcare certification. No training. They trained me. They trained me what I needed to do. Um, I was taught how to do phlebotomy. Um, I see now that would be a huge deal, or was it a huge deal there? And they just kind of let it happen because you. Now you go through a course and certify. Oh, of course. There was none of that. None of that. The, uh, literally, this space didn't have walls that went to the ceiling. So the exam rooms, there was no confidentiality. So, um, but the the only way the city would give the building to this group that wanted to form the uh, gay and lesbian center, as it was known then, um, 
was if there was an anchor tenant that was a clinic. Mm-hmm. So two former STD clinics, they called them sexually transmitting diseases then instead of STIs, um, merged and created Community Health Project and was the anchor tenant in the um, center. So I was taught by the man who was also a volunteer, um, had a, did other things in it, real life, taught me the procedures for the lab. And so I started out one night a week and eventually you eventually ended up running. And very quickly, within a few months, I was the head of the lab and on the payroll. Not on the payroll yet. I was still volunteering, still doing um, freelance design work because it was it was transitioning. But I said to Rona, the first job that comes open, please let me know. So um, she had been forming the first HIV primary care clinic in the world. Um, she had the vision that HIV needs to be seen as um, a primary health concern because uh, people who had HIV also needed care around colds and acne and well, yeah. you know every, everything else. So um, there was a merger with uh, Health and Hospitals Corporation in New York City through Bellevue Hospital, and um, which is where the our patients were admitted, and they formed um, the first HIV primary care clinic, like I said. And so the man who was running the nighttime STD clinic um, went to work full, you know, full time for the HIV clinic. So that job opened. So when I interviewed, they only knew me as the lab tech and then the guy who ran the lab and showed that I was dedicated um, and committed to um, community health project. But they said, you know, you're not, you have no medical training. What do you, how will you manage this? And I, I just thought of what I used to do as an art director where I wasn't designing things for myself. I was designing them for groups of other people who I had to get to consensus and get to work together. And so I thought the same skill. Exactly. So I just explained it that way. And they were like, Oh, okay. It, it was so many jobs. It's about finding out what the needs are, getting the group together, Precisely, but people make sure everybody has a role and they know what they're doing and the goals are the same. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. It, it, that's exactly right. And yet people are so locked into their, you know, little niche. They don't think that their skills are transform. Yeah. Transferable. Right. And, and so many people are in those positions that shouldn't be and don't have those downloads. That's, that's the other part of it. Yes, for sure. And, um, so I took the job and I was at the clinic um, every night uh, because during the daytime was the HIV clinic. Yeah. And how important was this clinic at the time? How important? It was really essential even prior to HIV 
because there were it it was care um, provided regardless of ability to pay. That was part of the mission, and so lots of men would, and it was mostly men who were coming um, with an STD or STI who didn't want it on their insurance. So they could be in finance or on Wall Street or whatever, and um, some corporate job, but they would still come there for the anonymity. Right. And so, um, so it was, it was actually quite an essential thing. And um, the f first two clinics that were the merger had started in the 70s and had worked on um, the Hep B vaccine. So um, it's always had played a role. And like I said, I knew nothing about it because I was on that other end of the spectrum. Um, so I started running the clinic at night and the screen, everybody was a lay person who was taught a specific task. And then there were doctors unpaid, also volunteer, and residents volunteering. Uh, and they were seeing things that they were not trained to do because men with HIV were presenting to a lay STD screener, yeah. you know, with uh, KS or... And, and the reason we needed all these volunteers were from all these... Uh, fields and and um, disciplines is because our government was certainly not acting. Well, for sure, the government wasn't acting, but even the um, institution of medicine didn't know what to do. Didn't know what to do. You know that if you were hospitalized at Saint Vincent's Hospital, the nurses would leave their your dinner at the door of your room. The medical world was basically adapting price to this new disease. Right. Or we're still fearful and um, everything was rumor and fear. And um, so everybody was on a learning curve. Yeah. And um, I just happened to hit that wave. So I, and because something switched in my head that, that day, um, it led me to this. So, okay. Uh, basically, I kept seeing things that were gaps in services because um, there weren't, even though we were the gay and lesbian clinic in the gay and lesbian center, um, there weren't many lesbians coming. Yeah. That's a perfect segue. Right. Can I catch your bridge? Yeah. Um, I want to jump to 1986. Okay. I, re I personally remember that the acronym used to be GLBT. And then I noticed all of a sudden it was LGBT way back in the 80s. Right. And I was like, why did this change all of a sudden? And it's because of Richard. He went, oh, what? 
At least why was that important? Why did you need to do that? Because I realized that there were so many lesbians who were caregivers who were basic and assuming not that were patients were stepping up when gay men weren't and were invisible. And even today, there's there, only in small towns do you go to a bar where there's men and women together now. Usually there, even the socialization is segregated. And um, so I pushed the board to change the nomenclature to LG. And then because we were seeing more transgender people, they'd refuse to change the B for bisexual. So, um, so I said, all right, let's make it LGBT. It's before the Q and Q and yeah, before all, before everything else, all the other, a long time. So, right. So we're talking early on and here we were in the gay and lesbian center and we were the lesbian and gay, bisexual, transgender health center. So, um, other organizations started taking notice and started using it. And here we are today. Phil, yes, yeah, so. so in 1986, something happened to you personally. You tested positive. Oh, yeah. Well, I always assumed I was, I had what all my friends had because I wasn't doing anything different than they were. I wasn't, you know, a nun. And I knew what they were doing and I knew what I was doing. So I didn't see, I didn't even understand why I hadn't come down with symptoms. So I just had always lived as if and then in 86, the test was approved. So they tested me at the clinic and um, I was positive and I kind of became the poster boy. How so? Because I was in the clinic and I had already come to grips with um, that I was positive even before I knew I was positive. So when I tested positive, I didn't go through that adjustment period. I had already made my adjustments and, um, you know, was in therapy as well. So I had worked through a lot of stuff. So whenever someone tested positive, after they spoke to the counselor, they said, is there someone, we don't want to send you home because it was nighttime. Do you want to talk to somebody here? So I was that person. So, you know, held a lot of hands and gave out a lot of tissues. And so it wasn't, it didn't devastate or did it? Well, I mean, it devastated a lot of people to get that test confirmation. You know, that it was just affirmation of what I had already assumed and was living under for four years already. So, um, I think it devastated the providers 
at the clinic more than it did to find out about you. Yes. And which kind of surprised me, but so anything that happened to me, they went into supercharged mode. Um, I had spinal taps. I had, um, you know, to see if it was meningitis, to see if it was, um, whatever I was going to see if I was, had MS, you yeah. whatever symptom I came up with, they wanted to, they wanted a different way. Exactly. And, um, which, you know, it's fine, but getting spinal taps is not, <laughs> it's not the most spot fun. But when someone who loves you is doing it, it's like, well, that was, that made it better. Um, so I, I want to share something about myself. Okay. And I have never shared this publicly. I've never talked about it, but I thought today would be the day to do it. If I was ever going to do it, oh, I need a box of tissue. Me. Uh, so in 1986, that same year, I was working for a, a big financial institution and in Princeton, New Jersey. So not hard from you, you know, and they were, the Red Cross was having a blood drive and all my coworkers were going to donate blood and they kept pushing me to donate blood. And I was like, I shouldn't be donating blood. And I knew if I did, they weren't going to use it because I was in the high risk group. But my coworkers were on me and on me. So I, I went down to the room where they were collecting blood and, you know, ticked off the box that I was a gay man and or whatever else they asked. And then, which was a bold step back then. Yeah. Yeah. And then that was October of 1986. And then in January of 1987, I got this letter. This is, this is from 1987. I kept it all these years. This is the letter telling me, at the time you donated blood, we informed you that we routinely do several tests on all blood and that we would notify you of the findings. Your blood did show a reaction to one of these tests. I think it is important for you to come to dis come in to discuss this test result since it indicates the finding of importance to your health. <laughs> Her tactile. Well, and this is from the Greater New York Blood Program, uh, New York Blood Center, American Red Cross. Well, it didn't take much for me to figure out what this was about. And so I was 23 at the time in a relationship. And, and although I thought I might've had it, but I'd had, I had had very few at that time, um, very few sexual encounters that might've explained getting HIV. Um, and I do believe that I probably contracted it back in 81 because I had been in a relationship for a while. So, um, anyway, uh, it has instructions to go into New York. I had to go into New York and make, make an appointment and talk to somebody to get the results. And, uh, yeah, that's how I found out. Did they capsule you? Um, the, yeah, I think it was a nurse that I spoke to and. Uh, she informed me and a, and a friend went in with me and I mean, I, 
it was just like in a movie. I mean, she's telling me this and all of a sudden like the room is spinning and echoing and I'm just not hearing what she's saying. And then she's talking about how to suck a dick and she's telling me how to lick the sides and like, <laughs> this is what we're talking about. And I'm, I'm trying to process that I just got a death sentence at 23. So, um, yeah. So I wanted, I wanted to sh share that here today. Thank you for there. It's, um, you know, it's a painful part of my life. I didn't think I'd ever talk about, but that's it. It, well, I'm honored that you shared it while talking to me. And I, you know, in looking over your history, I was like, wow, we really, you know, we've, we've come relic parallel track. Yes. Yeah. No one's studying me. Now, I'd be studying me. I've never had an opportunistic infection. Me, other than thrush. And that was because they use inhalers for asthma. Um, and I have only one friend living with AIDS from that time. And he actually lives with his husband in L.A., all of them, everyone else died quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely have some survivor guilt going on myself. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't even think of it as survivor guilt anymore. Um, because I had that a lot. And then I just started thinking about, well, what's my purpose? And so that kind of changed it. Well, did, did that, is that part of what drove you through the years? You know, deep, absolutely deep, that personal, uh, kick in the ass. Yeah. That personal kick in the ass, of course. Absolutely. All right. Okay. So we're going to jump to 1988. And youth becomes a big focus in your, in your, in your rituals, in what, what you, what you, the, the community that you're going to serve, the, the LGBT youth. What, why was that an issue then? What, how did that come to your attention? And yeah, that was the next big turning point for me. Uh, I, I, we're over that. My boss and I were headed up to an HIV retreat for ca for caregivers and people working um, in AIDS. And we were at a toll booth and she turned to me and she said, how would you like to start a youth program? And literally I said to her, the only thing I know about gay youth is my my spent one. Yeah. So what the hell do I know about it? And she literally said, don't worry, in nine months you'll be the expert everybody's coming to. And that's exactly what happened. And we worked very closely with um, the Hedrick Martin Institute, which started out as the Institute for the Protection of Gay and Lesbian Youth. Yeah. And um, they had approached Rona saying, why aren't you 
providing care to adolescents. Well, tell me about the need for the youth. What was going on at work? Why did this community need attention? Well, they needed attention because we weren't seeing younger people, you know, adolescents um, at the clinic at the time. Um, but Hedrick Martin was, and they were noticing their clients presenting with uh, physical conditions that they had never seen related to HIV. Well, they didn't know because they're not a medical facility. It's purely social services. Mm -hmm. And um, in particular, there were they were working with street youth. So runaway, throwaway, homeless, um, gay for pay, youth who were on the streets and um, getting by through survival sex. And so I met with Joyce Hunter, who should definitely go on Wikipedia and look up Joyce Hunter because she is another incredible mentor and hero in my life. Um, she was um, one of the um, upper management people at Hedrick Mart. And I remember having to go there to interview her to convince her why CHP could deliver services. And similar to you and the nurse telling you your results and it being surreal, in my mind, it was like I was in a dark room with a bare bulb and here was, here was this, here was this woman like really interrogating me. Mm. And because basically the young people that they were seeing were the victims of abuse by older gay men. And hello, that's who I am. So um, we had about a three-hour discussion, and um, I learned a lot, and I met everybody at Hetrick Morton and um, went back and thought about how the program should be constructed and designed. And my idea was to make it mobile. And an election year in New York, at least, is a great year to get funding because I got money from Mayor Dinkins and from Ruth Messenger, who was the Manhattan Borough President, to uh, purchase, have a custom-made van that was the size of a city bus. And it had, um, you entered into a waiting room that had a TV, microwave, uh, in the bus, in the bus, couch, you know, seating, then at storage underneath, um, a bathroom with a shower, and then two 
full exam rooms. And I designed it because I was, I not only had my graphic design background, but my high school was from Brooklyn Tech, so I knew how to draw mechanical drawings. Of course you did. So I was able to come up with this thing, and I knew what the dimensions had to, you know, the maximum, I think it was 34 feet. So this is a humongous piece of equipment. And we came up with the name Health Outreach to Teens, which was, the acronym was HOT. So it was the HOT van. And I had a volunteer doctor, Rick O'Keefe, who was from Montefiore's family medicine program and social medicine program. And he was also brilliant. And he and I, you know, talked about developing it, developing HOT. And then he and I went and recruited the staff we would need. As a, how, many, how many youths did this serve? Oh my God, it's, well, it's still operating. So it's as today, 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 to this day with three of the same people working in it, still mobile, still mobile, but we still have the issue of youths on the street. Yes. And at the time that I started the program, the city admitted to 40,000 homeless youth. And it was at a time where 40,000, right? So you know that it probably was 10 times that. And I can't eat. So, and, um, oh God, what was it called? I want to say Odyssey House. It was Father Bruce Ritter. Um, had housing for homeless youth, but they would not let uh, cross-dressing or uh, transgender or queer youth um, stay there. Be and their rationale was they couldn't guarantee their safety from either the other young people or even the staff, which blew my mind, but it was like, well, we have to do something. So we created a system uh, for HOT that turned everything upside down. So because for a young person just entering a building that said gay and lesbian center, tremendous, yeah, or big admission that they weren't ready to admit. And um, besides which, they would be in a room with adults in the waiting area, not appropriate. No, because they could have been abused by these same people that were waiting to be seen. So we made it a mobile van. We went, we did our administrative work um, around 9 to 11. Then we took a break and we were out on the street from, I don't know, I'd say 12 to 2. 
And interestingly, um, we would park the van near the piers before Giuliani closed them down. Mm. And because um, that was the hot spot of where the youth were congregating to work and um, or even to just hang out. It was at the end of Christopher Street. Um, we would park a few blocks away and um, we would let some of the youth know that we were there. And we had young people come to the van for months and months before they would ever let us see them medically. So building trust to build trust. So the driver of the van knew every single client. The providers didn't because it took months before they got to see anybody. And um, so I got Apple to donate the first, they called it a portable computer. It predated the laptop. The, the battery for this thing weighed more than most, you know, laptops. Um, and, but we needed to have a way to create an electronic record because we didn't know who would show up or what services they would need or, and we didn't want to keep a paper record on the van and then have to take them off. So, um, we got, and I got the Gap to donate clothing. So you got big companies to jump on board. Yes. There were some that were just like, it, it made me realize people are just waiting to be asked. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is if you don't ask, the answer is always no. Right. So, yeah. so we had the Gap and then Ricola. Recall. Right. Donated. Every few months, we would get cartons and cartons of Ricola. Can never have too many cough drops. No, because the kids would come in and say, oh, I have a sore throat. Yeah. So we'd give them cough drops. But the clinic itself, where they were stored, smelled like mint. And, um, and of course, the city donated condoms. And, um, you know, we'd have some young people who would be like, I'm not wearing a condom. It's too tight. You know, I can't feel anything. Right. I can't feel anything. So, but I would do something special that I've done in the past. Recently, I think I did. Um, I would open a packet, put my hands in the condom, stretch it, put it over my head and under my nose and just breathe in till I was like a cornhead. And you did this for the kids? Yes. Oh, okay. So I said, if your penis is bigger than this, you have my permission to not wear a condom. Otherwise, everybody's got to use a condom, whether you know you're positive or not. Did it work? Yeah, they loved it. Wow. It was hysterical. I want to jump ahead. Okay. 1993, you designed the first transgender clinic. Great. This is 1993. We're... And look at the issues that we're having today around transgender acceptance. How did that come up? That this was an amazing thing because I 
finally recruited the first transgender person to be on the board of the clinic. And Barbara Ann was like, well, we have to provide more transgender services. And so because everything other than the few paid positions we had and the people in the Bellevue HIV primary care program were all volunteers. So I went about finding transgender volunteers and it was a Saturday clinic. So no one else was there. It was only off for trans people. And so whether it was the front desk, screeners, psychiatrists, medical doctors, nurses, phlebotomists, everybody was transgender. Wow. Male to female, female to male. It, that was 1993. It was, it was the most remarkable group of people. Is that claim still or now? No. No, it was hard to maintain because we couldn't pay anybody. What, what do you think today when you hear the news about transgender violence and, and all of the bullshit about drag queens and, and, and laws against drag queens and what, I, what that, that must just, my mind just wants to explode. So, um, cause this is decades after you designed the first transgender club. Yes. And the reason why we designed it was because, uh, and I hadn't even <clears throat> worked in the anti-violence field yet. But coming to that, we knew that these were the people who were getting the least care from the institutions designed to protect them. Police, schools, uh, hospitals, you name it. Yeah. Um, and, and even within the gay community, right. even though they... Yeah, it was trans people who started st the Stonewall Rebellion. All of a sudden, it became these clean, white, you know, suit and tie, um, gay men and women in dresses, lesbians in dresses, who were taking the lead and going down to Washington and, you know, Frank Kameny and, all, you know, so it was like, Gay people, uh, trans people just got kicked to the curb yet again. So, uh, we had just hired our first medical director, and I convinced her to let us provide um, hormone therapy because so many of the um, Patients for adolescents were talking. This was first, it was for adults. Okay. THE, which was Transgender Health and Education, was a Saturday program. That was for adults. And, but many of them, most of them were using street hormones. And every trans kid on the van was using street hormones. So this became 
um, another public health issue, and it became harm reduction or risk reduction. So we were doing needle exchange illegally, but we could prescribe hormones legally. Um, and I mean, I think I've mentioned to you, it was like the wild, wild west. And um, kind of like Palm Springs, when it started to get built up, there were no rules or regulations. And people just had an idea and went with it. And that's how I felt during all this time, that um, I was in a position um, to help, to help and to see gaps in services, identify things and solve problems that every, other people seem to just be ignoring. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to have this boss who said, whatever I wanted, just go for it, do it. Just like your boss out there, right? Every boss in Lake Cut. Um, we're going to jump to 1998. Okay. And then your focus again changed and it was on gay and lesbian, the gay and lesbian anti-violence project. Right. Well, just to back up a little bit, um, when the next executive director came in, there was really a push for us to move the clinic out of the center and into its own freestanding, licensable clinic. So we ultimately moved to 18th Street in Chelsea, bought, bought a building and had it converted into a state-of-the-art um, health center for the LGBT community. We called it Callan Lord after Michael Callan and Audrey Lord. And um, it still exists, of course. And it's, I think it's in several boroughs now. And um, so I was leaving hot because I couldn't be that hands-on. And there were certainly adequate people to do that at that point. And um, the year that I left, uh, three of our trans youth were killed. Um, one of them was Ali Forney, who um, a group got together and created housing for youth for, and trans youth. Um, and then it's called, and it's in his name, it's the, it's the Alley 40 uh, Center. And um, the, the moment that I knew that what he had done was successful was that there were two places where gay youth started to hang out and there were enough of them out to form gangs. Not that they were gangs killing each other, but they were like, they were able to come out of the shadows, be themselves, and be like other kids. 
you know, there was a click here and there was a click there. And it was like, you know, okay. And I felt that was a measure of success that um, young people, at least enough of them started to like own who they were. They felt free and yeah, to be themselves. Correct. Yeah. And um, so basically my role at the new clinic at Callum Lord, I became more of the facilities manager than a program developer and director, which is really what I love to do. So um, I was basically a major super, you know, something went wrong, they called me and I would get someone to fix plumbing or whatever. It's like, this is not what I wanted to do. And <clears throat> around that time, I got back to NYU to get my master's at the Wagner School in uh, not-for-profit management. And um, Christine Quinn, who had been the executive director at um, the New York City Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Project, um, was leaving to run for city council. So I was approached by them to uh, apply to be the executive director there. And I wasn't paying much attention to what uh, was going on with other organizations, but I knew that they were having um, a problem with diversity um, because it was in the, all the gay rags and um, on the local gay news station. Um, so... You know, I had some idea about it. And then, of course, when they asked me to apply, I did as much research as I could, like you would for any job. And I went in for the interview. There was one person of color. I think there was three women and probably four men interviewing me, all from the board. And... I said to them, I have a question before we even start. I'm obviously a white man, and I know there are issues about diversity within the organization and within the community about the organization. So why would you even consider hiring a white man when at least it was a woman in the role before me. And they had done their homework and they felt that my background of diversity and inclusion and, well, you know, filled the, you know, you had a track record. Right. But yeah. And so, uh, we had a discussion and I said to them, you need to know that if, if you hire me for this position, uh, the anti-violence project had been primarily seen as a criminal justice organization, uh, protesting when someone was beaten, uh, dealing with the cops, 
And I said, to me, violence against it within the community is not only a criminal justice matter, but it's a public health matter. Because hearing that someone else, who I may or may not have known, got beaten up by someone who didn't know if they were gay or not, but assumed they were, threatens my life right. and prevents me from holding my partner's hand walking down the street. So it's not that I'm going to do away with all the other work, but I think there are parts of the Antivalis project that need to be expanded. So it was a more holistic um, approach to the all issue. Right. And it, you know, it was like they never really seen it as that. And then in October of 98, something horrible happened. Uh, Matthew Shepard was murdered. Yes. So, and that's right when I sort of stepped in to the job. So violence, that must have really put a spotlight on it. It sure did. It, it was top of mind worldwide. Uh, even though I knew that three youth of color had been killed and there was no worldwide uprise about it. Um, but this, you know, very um, pretty young boy was brutally beaten and left to die on a fence in Wyoming. Um, touched a nerve in people. And um, I'm not diminishing that, who he was and the pain he suffered, but I knew I had to sort of capitalize on it in a, for lack of a better word, um, to get the attention of our donors and our community. You seized at the moment. Yes. That's a better way to, to, to bring about positive change. Yes. Yeah where I hoped that I could and would. And um, the Anti-Violence Project in New York also was the founder of the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs. And most of them, uh, except for San Francisco, which had a thriving one, um, most of them were really flying by the seat of their pants and actually had formed when an event had happened. You know, so there was a mur an anti-gay murder and the, the community mobilized and started an organization and it was all volunteers and they had their budgets and they really didn't know what they were doing and we would help them <clears throat> um, with uh, the press, with media, with our law, uh, like enforcement, um, with the families, with the community. Um, so even before I actually started working there, I went to a me uh, the annual meeting in San Francisco, and I took two people from AVP with me and 
the anti-violence project. The anti-violence project. Um, who were in the Madrid, would be in the Madrid regime. And uh, one of them is Clarice Patton, who is another hero of mine. And he was one of very few people of color at AVP. And he was the development director. And he would get dragged out, you know, whenever there was uh, an event to show how diverse AVP was. But he wasn't involved with direct services or anything. So I met with staff, and there were a few people of color on staff, and there was one trans woman on staff who had been a client, but she was the receptionist. And um, I saw in her, Vicki, um, you may have seen, um, she did a documentary about um, Marsha P. Johnson. Um, it's go, go seek it out because it's really a brilliant um, documentary. But anyway, um, Vicky was at Stowe. Oh. And she even took the drink sign out of the building that night. So she has the, you know, what cocktail costs. And um, anyway, um, I quickly rearranged a lot of things on uh, what I felt was the Titanic at the time and um, to sort of write things. And um, oh, and I had a meeting with the entire staff uh, prior to my starting, just so they would get to know me and I could get to know them. And people were, you know, well, he's, you know, he's a white guy. He's like the new executive director and, you know, he's the boss, blah, blah, And that's never how I perceived myself, even though I know that's how I perceived. So I said, please ask me anything. And everybody just sort of, you know, looked down. And, and then one person finally said, are you going to be the voice of APP? And I, I said, there might be times when it's appropriate for me to be, but you do the work every day and you all need to be the voice of AVP so that the community can see the diversity in staff. You can talk to the diversity in our client base. Um, and if you're having, if you, if you have trouble with public speaking or I'll get you training. You know, I'm a very resourceful person when it comes to helping people get where they went because people did that for me. And um, so the first thing I did when I got there was to have a strategic planning meeting that was facilitated by a person who wasn't part of the organization because I didn't want to come in and fire people because I think that's a horrible model. 
Um, I figured... Not everyone feels that way. Well, no, they don't, but I do. And so I felt, let's have a strategic planning meeting and um, come up with a five-year plan of where we want to be, where we are, where we want to be, and people will self-select out. Because, and I told people, the only thing I never want to hear is, but that's the way we've always done it. Oh, yeah. And because, trust me, my background has told me there are many ways to do something that is not, that's the way we've always done it. And especially for our community, there might be a better, there might be, right. I'm going to jump ahead again to uh, 9-11, 2001. And you got involved at Ground Zero and the, with the Red Cross. Yes, well, you had some issues with them. Well, issues with everything that was going on. What, how, what was happening in the gay community that was wrong around that whole 9-11? Okay. Well, incident. Um, since we were a victim services organization, we felt we should have a presence down at the Department of Health, which was where people would go to find out about benefits, um, those who had lost a partner. Um, and Worth Street is about two blocks from the basin of the World Trade Center. And uh, we had been told, oh, you don't need masks, you know. You know, it's all safe. Uh, so we went down in shifts, and we could hear how people who were, um, for lack of a better term, straight couples, uh, were being treated as opposed to queer people or non-gender conforming people or whatever. Um, by the various organizations that had um, tables set up. And so it was really disheartening for someone to hear, and there was no gay marriage then. Right. So um, we lost that automatic privilege. We might lose that again if we're right. careful. Exactly. So don't take anything for granted. But, um, and there was, wasn't even domestic partnership at that. So we, um, the American Red Cross has sent you that lovely letter, um, from New York, um, had a table there and we heard how, um, people were being treated versus how our community was being treated. So uh, with two other executive directors, we called for a meeting at their headquarters on the Upper West Side and went down there and told them what was wrong and what we observed and how um, what needed to be changed. And 
we thought this is going to be another meeting with, you know, a bureaucracy that's going to, you know, spin its wheels and bam, they changed. So why do you think it was that easy? I have no idea. Was it partly because of you and your reputation? I, I can't claim it for me. Okay, I will. But it was <laughs> there. Well, they, it's funny because there were three white men who showed up who looked like them, spoke like them, and could articulate the problem to them, and they got it. So I've always felt if I have white privilege, that's, that's the reason I have it, and that's what I need to do with it, is to speak truth to power, to speak for people who are afraid to speak for themselves until they're able to speak for themselves. And it's always worked. I mean, it's, that's why I say my life has just gone from strength to strength in that regard. And not to pat myself on the back, but I've been in situations or been offered situations that just allowed me to fly and was lucky enough to have people who said, if you fall, so what? And I, so um, we got the American Red Cross to change their policies about how um, same-sex couples or partners would be treated. But they still weren't getting immediate benefits that were offered to married couples because those systems were in place already, um, regardless of 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, workers' comp and um, other tragedies, whatever. Um, so I lost what you're you help facilitate that. Helping these gay men and women oh, access, yes, it's better. Right, so, right. So what we set out to do was to raise money for within the community so that all of the same-sex partners who had lost a partner um, could have an, an immediate uh, boost of cash right. that straight people were getting. And we raised about half a million dollars and we called it the 9-11 fund, the LGBT 9-11 fund. And we found 22 people that we screened and um, one turned out to be a total scam artist. Yeah. So got rid of him. And um, the worst um, per survivor was this young man who had been down at 9-11 with his partner. He himself had MS and couldn't run. And he was with his partner as the buildings were coming down. And he, I'll start to cry. He told his partner to run ahead so that 
he could save himself and he crawled under a car and the rubble killed his partner who ran ahead and he survived and he had such survivor guilt that he it's so tragic he ended up committing suicide so ultimately we had 20 um surviving same-sex partners from new york the pentagon and pennsylvania and we divided the money equally among them just to you know give them a, a boost and it was the weirdest thing for the anti-violence project was normally we just were doing our job and helping victims of violence but all of a sudden we were also victims of violence helping people cope with this existential threat plus any other violence that was in their lives so it changed the whole dynamic because you know doctors are trained to have that distance that objectivity and but we we couldn't have that anymore that barrier was down so we were victims helping victims or victims were coming and being helped by victims so we i i got a um, social worker to come in and work with us as an organization and also one-on-one -on -one so that um, anybody having a hard time with anything could just you know meet with her uh take time out or whatever um because it was a rough time for everybody whether you were helping uh people with other needs or not we had all gone through that tragedy together um we're going to jump ahead one last time all the way to 2012 you moved here to palm springs yes this town is rich with interesting people. That's one way. Um, why Palm Springs? Well, we thought, where do old queers go to die? <laughs> so we were living in Jersey City at the time, and <clears throat> I needed to go out on disability because um, all the treatments that had been approved were failing me and um, said there was nothing that I could take. And I had six T cells that I could name. And I think they were like Lucy and Ricky, Ethel and Fred, and uh, little Ricky and Baba Lou. I just, just, just sort of put levity to it, but it was a scary time. And, um, one of the doctors who had rotated through community health project as a resident was now um at um the aaron was it the aaron diamond yeah the aaron diamond foundation um running clinical trials and i called him and merck was just starting there were only six slots for a new 
um, Proteus inhibitor. And he said, you know, the criteria is you can't be on this, you can't be on that, can't have taken this. So I said, well, I've taken everything. So he talked to my primary care doctor and said, Richard's got to go off everything for six weeks. And he held that space, one of six spaces open for me till my blood work came back, showing that I was naive from having taken any of uh, the prohibited medications. And I credit him with saving my life because, and I was on that drug. I'm still on that drug. And here you are today. And here I am today. How would you describe your life? One word. One word for you. Well, I would say overwhelming, but um, just to spin it uh, better, um, God, we're happy word. It's so hard for me. Um, Are you happy? I am happy. I'm just come through a period of lots of stress and, um, you know, I feel like I survived two pandemics. Yeah. So you're married. I, we didn't talk about your yeah. husband. Can we name my neighbor, Michael DeYoung? Michael DeYoung, who is, uh, and you met him. Oh, I want to just back up for a minute. Ah, you met what, when you met when? 35 years ago. Can you tell everyone how you met? I oh, certainly. This is not more of the sexual heroes portion of the program. No, no. It ain't all. <laughs> um, we met on a phone sex line because in sex, it predates Grindr. What year was that? This was 1988. And it was one of those lines that you called like an 800 number, it's probably 888 or something. And you were on a queue and someone come on the line and if you liked their voice, you talk to them. If you didn't, yeah. you'd hit the pound. He and the next person in the queue. So Michael and I ended up speaking for a year. Wow. We never met. I, I was living with my ex at the time, so I didn't... I never even gave my real phone number. And because I didn't want him calling at four in the morning and waiting. So you could you could keep connecting through this line. We did. Yeah. We always found each other. But then when we wanted to like say, oh, let's exchange numbers. Right. So he gave me his number and I would give him some made up number. All right. And he's dyslexic. So he always blamed himself. So it was like, that's fine. And you're still together today. We are. A year to the day that we started talking, we decided we had to uh, meet finally and um, October 8th. So October 8th, 1989, we went on our first date. And, the night, and I had never told her that it was HIV positive. So I thought, I can't go on this date without having told him. Um, I don't want to put him in that position of being freaked out or whatever. So the night before I called him and I said, I just need you to know, um, and I totally understand 
if you're not okay about it or whatever, uh, we need to process it. Or, um, I think at that point, no, not, I didn't have AIDS, clinical AIDS, because I had a higher level of T cells at that point. I said, I'm HIV positive. And he paused for a second and he said, everybody's got baggage. And I thought, we're perfect, come back. You know, it was, that's remarkable. It was at that time. That is really. And it was totally. He's a good guy. But I didn't realize the steamer trunks. He was raging to the relationship. You know, you only find out these things as the years go by. But um, next October will be 35 years. So we got their um, domestic partnership on October 8th. And we got married up on the mountain in 2013 when it was legalized federally on October 18th, October 8th, so uh, in 2013. And we kept doing it because I didn't want to have to remember more than one date. Um, to wrap up, I'm not going to ask you, you know, what are you most proud of? Because I mean, it's just, it's just, there's so much. What I'd like to know is, what would you like to share with people who are watching about the future? What what do you see happening or what do you think needs to happen now? Because it's fucked up. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. If you were in charge right now, let's do it. Let's do it this way. If you were in charge right now, like you were then, what's the first thing you would do? The first thing, and I've said this before to other people, if I was at working age and wanted to get back into things, I would... Um, work on the unhoused because I think that there's not a city or a community that has figured it out, that has looked at it holistically, that has realized that every individual who is homeless or unhoused or unsheltered has a specific set of reasons. And there's not, it's an umbrella. It's not one definition. It's very complex. And it's, it's, it's so complex, but yet it's addressable if you break it down into component parts. You know, we have um, battered women shelters because we knew that women had to get away from their abusers. Um, and then there were sets of things that they needed. So there are models that already exist. It just needs to be expanded out. Not every person who's unhoused um, is a drug addict. There are people, even in this community, which I would, middle class or affluent, is one paycheck away from being unhoused. So you don't have to have mental health issues to be unhoused. You don't have to have a battery partner to be unhoused there's a million and one reasons and a million and one solutions depending on what the needs are. exactly exactly and it many of them could be under one roof as long as you have that team that knows how to assess the needs and get the person to the place they need to be 
and break through the bureaucracy and the red tape. So, but the only other thing is, when we were talking before, I realized that the things I've been most successful with are the things that have scared me the most. And it's, so if something is, makes me afraid, that's what I want to go towards. Yeah. Because it's like, I need to learn about it. I need to educate myself, understand why I'm fearful, and figure out. It's like there's a prison, and you just have to turn it, and you see something different. And that's been the lesson of my life. So whatever scares me is the thing that I've attracted. Richard, thank you. Thank you. For doing this today. Sure. Wow. Then knowing your move under sexual heroes, I'm honored that you asked me to participate. Well. And I think you're wonderful. I'm very proud of what you've been doing. And um I'm so glad to be uploaded in. Yeah, so I'm going to cry. <laughs> it's very meaningful to me to share, to share it because, you know, you just go through life doing what you do and, you know, a small circle of people know about it, but, and they don't care if people know about it, but I just want them to be inspired to do something, to get off the ass and do something about it. That's what this is all about. And I hope you have been inspired today. And thank you very much for watching this episode of Sexual Europe's. Season six podcast episodes are specially edited versions of in-person interviews available on my YouTube channel. Links for the channel and my guest are included in the show notes. All my links can be found at robertblack.one. Thanks for listening.